Hey friends, we hope this message from C3 Fort Worth helps you see Jesus like never before. And if you're in or around Fort Worth, we'd love to meet you on a Sunday or at one of our weekly dinner parties. It's been a long time since I've preached in front of people, so um, it's been like seven months. So if I make more eye contact with the camera than I do with you, don't be offended. Um, I'm used to being in a, a dark studio by myself on Fridays and record my message and Normally, I feel naked without my wife, and I still kind of do, but I've gotten so used to being by myself while I preach every message that it's like, I wish she was here 100%, but uh, she is the better half. She is better looking half. She is better all around, and I am, um, thanks, thanks, <laughs> Meredith. We've married 14 and a half years and have two amazing girls, Ainsley and Riley, uh, 11 and 8, and they are incredible. Our 8-year-old asks the deepest questions in the car while I'm not, while I'm not there. It's always when, when I'm not in the car, she asks the questions, and Morgan's like, why don't you wait till Dad gets home, and you can ask him. Um, but I just, I, I'm so thankful for them. I love them. Uh, well, I know the Cowboys play at noon, and so I've got an hour and 10 minutes to to get done. So Brandon said, go as long as you want to. So I'm going to. <laughs> oh, you know, oh, that's how, I, that's how, that's what I heard. You set a time and I said, I think that means I can go as long as I want. Uh, well, just first, let me just uh, say thank you. I'm so honored to be here. First time in Fort Worth. Brandon has been to C3 Kansas City three times, but this is my first time here. That's true, not on a Sunday. Three Wednesdays add up to one Sunday, I think. So, um, <laughs> That's right, and I'm here. But I'm honored to begin this new pattern of politics, power and politics, politics and power. Um, are we ever not in a political season, it seems like, in this country? Um, just so you know, we did a politics series a year ago in November, so we're like, we're way ahead. You guys you waited too long, but, um, but Brandon and I, we've been talking about this, doing something like this for months, I think before COVID uh, even hit. And so I'm just so thankful that it's here, and uh, I'm ready to, to jump in. Um, first, I want to give a disclaimer. Uh, although Brandon and I have talked about pretty much everything I'm going to say today, uh, the views expressed here are not necessarily the views held to by Pastor Brandon and Meredith Cole, C3 Fort Worth, or C3 Global. I don't know. Um, <laughs> They cannot be held liable. This is me. That's right. If you got any, you got any upset people, don't, talk, don't take it on them. Let's talk. Let's extend this conversation beyond these next few minutes that we're together. Um, hit me up on, on the socials. But um, let's pray. Father God, we pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy government come, thy politics be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Thy reign and rule come, thy plans and purposes be done, on earth as it is in heaven. May we be an anticipation of the age to come. May we embody the reign of Christ here and now. Amen. When someone says we should have a biblically informed approach to politics... What do they mean? 
I like to ask simple questions. I've discovered in doing dinner party the, the, the power of a good question. And my wife has helped me be better, a better question asker. Um, but when somebody says that, what do they mean? Where do, we, where do we start? Where do we look? Who do we look to? Do we start with the Ten Commandments? Do we start with uh, Cain, who set up the first civilization? Do we go to Abraham, father? What about Jacob, who becomes Israel? What about Joseph? He made it, he made it from the prison to the palace. Okay, he also got his people enslaved. Do we look to Joshua, my namesake? How about David, my middle name? Double whammy. They are simply, all of those people are simply types and shadows of the one who was to come. What I've come to understand is that what we need is a Jesus-informed, a Jesus-shaped approach to politics. As Christians, we are not followers of the book. We're followers of the person who the book points us to. What the Bible does best is point us to the Word made flesh, who is Jesus Christ. This means that we can't read the Bible as a flat text. You know what I mean when I say that? Where every verse carries the same weight and authority as the next. I don't know that we could go back to the Old Testament and see dietary restrictions and say that is equal to the revelation of God in Christ. Or John's revelation of God is love, who says it two times in like 10 verses in uh, 1 John 4. It is an undulating text. There are soaring heights and there are very low lows. The Bible is not afraid to, to reveal its whole being to us. It doesn't cover up its flaws. It doesn't try to gloss over it and say, eh, let's not have that character in the Scripture. It's all there for us to, at some point, be able to help point us to the Word made flesh. One of the highest heights is Christ is the perfect mirror image or understanding of who God is, as Colossians tells us. So, in my humble opinion, what that means is that Jesus becomes the standard by which we should be formed and informed. When we are met with opposing perspectives between Moses and Jesus, we go with Jesus. Where Moses said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Jesus says, yeah, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say or between Elijah and Jesus, we go with Jesus. But, but Jesus, the Samaritan village didn't let us in. Should we call down fire? Should we nuke them like Elijah did? Jesus says, uh, you don't know what's in your heart when you say something like that. So we go with Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the chip off the old block. This was revealed to us on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus and St. Pete is like, let's build a, a tabernacle for all three of you. We'll make it like a truck stop. People can come and come up here and hit Elijah, hit Moses, hit Jesus. He viewed them as the same. And the voice from the cloud said what? This is my son. Listen to him. And then the Moses and Elijah disappear. 
And the words to the fearful disciples were what? Don't be afraid. Jesus comes over and touches it. Hey, stand up. Don't be afraid. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which means God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. So I'm not here to convince you of anything other than Jesus is Lord. That is our political statement as a church. Yes, I hope it is. I'm not here to persuade your vote or tell you which side I think is going to usher in the kingdom of heaven because Jesus already did that. We are now invited to participate in that reality, in that kingdom. And this kingdom has its own politics. As Jesus told Pilate on Good Friday, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, my disciples would be fighting. His kingdom is not from this world, but it is for this world. This kingdom does not invade like every other empire has on this earth. Instead, it slips in subversively through the way we live. And the place that I believe paints the clearest picture of what the politics of the kingdom are is the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes. Pastor Rich Viotis from um, Queens, New York, he says, Many, when Christians are more conversant around partisan talking points than the Sermon on the Mount, we demonstrate that our Christianity is secondary and a servant to our politics. Did you know it's reported that Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount every morning and every evening? Because he was convinced that was the way forward. That was the only way to bring peace to the earth. He's a better Christian than I am. In Brian Zahn's book, Beauty Will Save the World, he is talking about the third temptation that Jesus experienced in the wilderness right before he launches into this incredible sermon. And Brian says this, As Jesus contemplated how to go about establishing the kingdom of God, for this was the mission of Messiah, the ever-present temptation was to do it in the way of the pharaohs and Caesars. Of course, Jesus would be far more righteous than the Egyptian and Roman kings, he would use his kingly power for good, but he would first have to become a king. And this was the temptation, to become a king in the way of kings. It was the temptation to bypass the way of the suffering servant and seize the throne through the will to power. Instead, Jesus resists that temptation. He begins to announce and enact the kingdom the arrival, the coming of this kingdom of God. And he begins, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, repent and let's go. When we hear that word repent, what do we think? Do we think that's empowering or, oh. When Jesus says repent, the word is Reponse, it means to rethink. It doesn't mean to beat yourself up. Oh, I'm so terrible. Have I repented well enough? No, it means to rethink everything in light of this new truth. The truth is that Jesus is Lord. Now rethink everything and reach out and grab hold of this kingdom. It's right here. 
And he says, here's who's really going to dig this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, the, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's it. Now go and study. <laughs> Try to live that out. I believe the Beatitudes, the opening eightfold blessing for those who will be most happy, most satisfied with this new kingdom from heaven, is the overture of the Sermon on the Mount, and ultimately the overture for the entirety of the rest of the book of Matthew. If you're not sure where the Sermon on the Mount is, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three chapters of almost all red letters. There's four verses in those three chapters that aren't Jesus speaking, and it's worth study. It's worth sitting in. Maybe, I won't say it, never mind. Uh, I was going to say, maybe we could be as good as Gandhi and read it every morning and night. Um, what Jesus summarizes in the Beatitudes is unfolded within the sermon, and then the gospel contains accounts of the Beatitudes being worked out in time and space, and that's what I'm convinced of. You can't convince me any other way. But I want to read these Beatitudes again with reframe, refreshed language that maybe can get it past being this nice church little phrase and we can see the power, the subversive nature of what this, this message was all about. All I can hope for is that a process of repenting or rethinking everything in light of Christ can either begin for you today or can continue to further your journey. Think of, think of your, your, your faith walk more as a walk and less of a believing the right doctrines. We're all on a journey. It's about the journey. It's about being able to be humble enough, like we talked about last night, be able to go, oh, I'm going to change my mind. I don't know that I think that anymore. Can we do that? I mean, what you experienced of God when you first started following him, I mean, has nothing changed since then? Have you not gone, oh, man, he wasn't, he's not like that. Turns out he's actually good all the time. So, here we go. All of these are worth a sermon in and of themselves, and so I'll do my best to uh, concise. Yeah, I'll be here for eight weeks. Um, I'll do my best to be concise with these eight. Yeah. All right, here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What about this? Blessed are those who are poor and know it, for the kingdom of heaven is well suited for ordinary people. The Beatitudes are not platitudes. You know what platitudes are? Phrases that we say to people that... It, have no impact or meaning whatsoever. They end up making us feel better when we say it to somebody than the person hearing it. Like when you're at a funeral and you're like, you feel like you've got to say something and you're like, wow, I feel better. But the person that heard that is like, 
that didn't help me at all. These are subversive blessings. These are ways of blessing people that we don't usually think of as being blessable. God in Christ breaks into the world the same way every person has ever broken into the world, through his mother. Jesus is not born of a daughter of Caesar or the daughter of King Herod, the current king of the Jews at the time. He's born to an unmarried teenage girl from a no-name town on the outskirts of Israel. And what happened when Christ's divine nature came into contact with Mary's broken human nature? Did Jesus become infected with sinfulness? No, in her womb, Jesus begins to heal humanity. The healing of humanity didn't begin on the cross or even on Easter Sunday. It began when Christ was conceived in the womb of this poor girl. And Jesus, as he grew through boyhood and into manhood, and he hears his papa tell him it's time to start your ministry, he felt no need to go to the center of power. He didn't go to Jerusalem or Rome. Instead, he climbs up on a hill and chooses to begin his most important sermon with an audacious list of people who will be blessed by God. He says, these people, these poor, powerless, non-influential, non-important nobodies are blessed. The wealthy, the well-connected, and the well-educated have no advantage in the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom of heaven is well-suited for ordinary people. Someone who I think exemplifies this beatitude in the Gospels is in the parable in Luke of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee and tax collector both go to the temple to pray. And the, ta- the, the Pharisee looks up to God, says, God, I thank you that I am not like the thief, the prostitute, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give my tithe, feeling very self-righteous. The tax collector stands far off doesn't even look up to heaven, keeps his head down, beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the basis for the Jesus prayer. Let me know the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we ask for mercy, pray for mercy, we are not asking for God to give us something he doesn't want to. We are not asking for him to go, I know you really don't want to be merciful to me, but would you please? No, when we say, be merciful to me, Jesus, it is more forming us to reorient ourselves back to his mercy, to step back into the ever-flowing waterfall of his mercy, because his mercy endures until you die. Nope, it endures forever. It endures forever. It's the same thinking like to think that God turns away from the wicked. I think it's St. Anthony the Great said that makes as much sense as the sun turning off for those who are no longer able to see. When Adam and Eve sinned, did God turn his back on them? They They disoriented themselves from the light of the love of God, and suddenly they saw their shadow 
and said, that's reality. That's truth. And the whole point of Jesus coming was to go, no, turn back. If Adam was the first head of humanity, humanity got a head transplant when Jesus came. And what Jesus did was orient us, turn us back to his father to say, I've always been here. I haven't gone anywhere. I've not separated myself from you. We, we created whole theologies built around half of one verse in Habakkuk that says, you're too good to look on sin. And we believed it. The problem was we stopped reading. Because the next half of the verse says, so why do you? I thought you were too good to look on sin. That's what I thought. But yet, you are. If we actually believe that, we are demoting Jesus and not saying he's actually God. Because all Jesus did was sit face to face with those who were unable to come to temple, unable to be entered into the worshiping community. He's like, let's have a meal. All he does is look at us. And he's, his love is a wooing love. Come back. Come back. All right, that was too much. Um, everyone, everyone who has been by, passed by, passed over, overlooked, and excluded, this kingdom is for you too. Number two, here we go. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How about this? Blessed are the sorrowful who mourn and grieve, for they create space to encounter comfort from outside themselves. If we've grown up in America, then you understand that in general, this is a generalization, we don't like lament. We've been schooled and formed in denial. It's part of being a superpower. When we're walking around going, we're number one, we're number one, we're number one, it doesn't leave much room for, for lament and grief and sorrow and mourning. But that way of life leads to a very shallow existence. And Christians can be the worst. We tend to think we've got to be the happiest people in the world because we're Christians. Everything's great. I'm not suffering. I'm not going through a hard time because God is good. Yes, he is. But don't live in denial. Anybody seen Goodwill Hunting? Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt Damon, Rob Williams, towards the end of the movie, finally have that breakthrough moment in Robin Williams' office as Matt Damon is telling him about the abuse that he experienced as a son, as a young son from an alcoholic father. And Robin Williams says, it's not your fault. And Matt's like, yeah, I know. No, it's not your fault. I know. No, you're not. it's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know, and he gets angry. And then finally, Robin just keeps saying it over and over again. And finally, Matt grabs him and begins to just weep. Maybe that will be the process of what it will take for us to become a, a mourning people. I don't know how many people have come to me at our church and after losing a loved one and just like, how do I do this? How do I mourn well? I miss them. About two and a half years ago, I lost my dad suddenly. On a, on a Friday, Friday noon, preached that two days later, 
on having hope when it seems hopeless. I don't know that there's a day that goes by that I don't think about him. It seems like we've taken the Apostle Paul's words that said, or he said, uh, we don't mourn like those without hope. And then we just said, well, I guess we shouldn't mourn then. We, we used the Apostle Paul to, to trump Jesus. He didn't say don't mourn. He said our hope is ultimately in the, the ultimate healing, the resurrection of all beings. Yeah. In the life and the age to come. That is the healing that we are longing for. You should still mourn. You should feel, not escape. And when we stop living in denial but choose to say, yes, I'm experiencing loss, I'm grieving, I'm not strong enough, it allows space for the Spirit of God to come in and bring the healing you're looking for. If we live in denial, then what we're really denying is ourselves is the very thing that we need the most, which is the comforter to come and walk with us. Maybe the healing will come to you in a time of quiet prayer. Maybe it'll come through the embrace of a friend. Maybe you can be the healing presence in a friend's life. When you get, the next time you're at a funeral, I hope it doesn't happen for a long time, you're sitting with the the grieving family, don't try to make the awkward silence less awkward. Because you just make it more awkward, right? I don't, this is weird, this feels weird. I need to, I need to break this silence. No, just, just sit there. Your presence of just being there does more than you could ever imagine. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'll give you my new version in a second. The meek? Really? They're going to inherit the earth? This is the upside-down reality to everything our culture champions. Our culture says more, more, more. Walter Brueggemann would call that the way of the regime of Pharaoh. We've got to get more. More bricks to store more things. No days off. Maybe for me, this is the one beatitude that reveals the striking difference between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. What Jesus is saying is, my kingdom doesn't come by force, but by something even more powerful. When I hear the word meek, maybe just because it rhymes, I think weak. Weak equal, meek equals weak. I've never heard anyone ask for meekness in prayer. Lord, make me more meek. I've never heard a parent pray that over their child. I pray that you make them the meekest person that's ever walked this earth. Why would we say that? Because all we've ever understood was that it means strength under control. Which sounds more like, I could help you, but I'm not going to. I love the way Thomas Merton, the great 20th century Trappist monk from Kentucky, defined meekness. He says it's the biblical word, you ready? For nonviolence. Nonviolence is not the same thing as pacifism. I don't believe in nonviolence because I'm a pacifist. 
I believe in nonviolence because I follow the nonviolent Christ. Pacifism is an ethical stance that you can adopt apart from Christ, and that's fine. Go for it. That's just not me. I'm following the nonviolent God. And nonviolence should be understood like this. I did a, a certificate course last year with the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice, and uh, this is how they define nonviolence. The use of peaceful means to bring about social and political change without the use of force that causes physical, emotional, psychological, or spiritual harm. Now, who on earth can do that except Christ? The nonviolent seek for ways to peace that don't cause physical harm to persons or property. Now, how does this connect with inheriting the earth? Psalm 37.11 says, The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. I think we should all care about the earth, not seek ways to destroy it, but instead find ways to see it and all life flourish. This is my opinion. I think Christians, at, the, at our heart, we should be environmentalists. If you don't care for the earth, then there will be no earth to inherit. I call this Yogo, Y-O-G-O-E. You only get one earth. So here's the question. Are we even happy with this beatitude? Are we, are we happy with this blessing? If we're honest, do we even want to inherit the earth? Most of us live a life of such detachment from the earth that we no longer see it as a living thing, but purely utilitarian. How can I use this thing? How can I make money from it? We are living in one of the first generations that never have to know how to plant anything, grow anything, harvest anything, hunt anything, butcher anything, cook anything. I'm not saying none of that's bad in and of itself. But is that causing us to have more solidarity with the earth is it causing us to be more connected to it or less? God's invitation to Adam in the Garden of Eden was to take dominion. And many Christians have interpreted that as do whatever you want to the earth. Hunt an animal to extinction? Sure. God said we can. No, God's invitation was to see life flourish on this planet. And I believe it's a teaching worth pursuing for the rest of our lives. So here's my rewording of this beatitude. Blessed are the nonviolent, for they shall truly heal their land. Earth care is something that's becoming more and more near and dear to my heart. And maybe we can start by simply being like St. Francis. Anybody know St. Francis? He referred to earth as mother. He looked to the moon and said, brother. Looked to the fox and said, sister. She didn't birth us, but we are sure from her. Genesis 3 says, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So I don't think the earth is feminine any more than God is all man. God is the fullness of, of woman and man. All right, did I offend everybody enough with that one? <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. 
I, I changed righteousness to justice because it's the same word. Diakusune. We, we hear righteousness. We hear, blessed are those who want to be spiritual because you'll be really, really spiritual. We don't really know what righteousness means in our normal language. It means justice. It means to make things right. And that's what God's justice is. It's restorative. It's not punitive. It's not, it's not looking to punish or pay back. How do we restore everything? That's what his justice does. So here's this. Blessed are those who seek justice as if it were their food and drink. For them, the nonviolent government of God is a dream come true. After Jesus finishes his Beatitudes, in verse 17, he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. What was the purpose of the law of Moses? The aim, the, the goal, the vision, the dream. It was to produce a faithful and just society. A society of people shaped in such a way that they would express fidelity to God and justice to neighbor. But along the way, the people of God needed reminders of who they were called to be. And that's when the prophets would step in and remind them, call them back to their high calling. And we see this especially in the poet prophets of Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah, where they just go, yeah, you're doing, yeah, the... the the quality of your society is not how rich are the rich, but how are the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the imprisoned, and the re refugee, how are they treated? So they don't, they don't really kind of bless them for having wealthy people. They just go, how are these people, this, this group, the marginalized, what is their life like? And then Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's faithfulness. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's justice. You can't separate those from one another. Because the biblical test case for love of God is love of neighbor. But the biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. So how well you treat your enemy is really how much you love God. Jesus is saying, my kingdom... It's for those who hunger and thirst for justice. It's what you've been longing for. I know plenty of activists and have read plenty of others to say, I know that they would not say they are satisfied with the way the world is right now. But they would also say they couldn't imagine doing anything else with their lives. And in that, they are satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who give mercy and resist revenge, for they will get mercy back when they need it most. If you're above the age of 30, chances are you were brought up with Karate Kid. Can I get an amen? We could maybe say we were more formed in the image of John Kreese than in the image of Jesus Christ. John Kreese was the the sensei for the Cobra Kai Karate Dojo, what was their motto? No mercy. He says, we do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. Here, in the streets, in competition, a man confronts you. He is the enemy. An enemy deserves no mercy. 
And even though he's playing the bad guy to the good uh, Mr. Miyagi, we'll still kind of go, I kind of agree with him. Mercy is for the weak. But Jesus offers another way. This is why I think it has to begin with repentance to follow Jesus. It has to begin to rethink. Because the way of Jesus is so contrary to the way of the world. And while we struggle for justice in one hand, the temptation would be to achieve that justice by whatever means necessary, maybe even with violence. We could be tempted to be like Peter in Gethsemane and pick up the sword to achieve the justice the way he saw fit. But instead, Jesus Pete, put that away. And he heals the man whose ear got cut off. Uh, Malchus, I think was his name. He was a servant of the high priest Caiaphas. And I wonder if his job ever really changed after that. He just had a new high priest that he was going to serve. His name was Jesus. Jesus says, struggle for justice, but do it nonviolently. Pete, put that sword away. Mercy calls us to end the violence against ourselves and those around us. And the church father, Tertullian, said, in disarming Peter, Christ disarms all Christians. I know I'm in Texas. Father John Deere says, as Jesus' followers, our, our uh, mercy should disarm the violent, save the condemned, and help everyone to walk away in peace. Just like Jesus did with the account of the woman caught in adultery. Our society tends to value revenge above mercy. Don't be shaped by that. Don't get, don't get sucked into thinking that's the only way to respond. Jesus told us that the measure we give mercy will be dealt to us. So when in doubt, go with mercy. I don't think we'll stand before Jesus and he'll say, Josh, you did some good things, but you're just too merciful. What are you going to do? I guess I'll have mercy. We can't be too frivolous with our mercy giving. And the song is right because it's drawn from the scriptures. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So blessed are those who give mercy and re resist revenge, for they will get mercy back when they need it most. This next one's short, so don't worry. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who keep a beating heart filled with love and compassion. For they shall perceive God when and where others don't. Of all the people to have a pure heart and see God, a man who somehow hadn't had his heart turned to stone, but remained a beating heart, somehow the Roman centurion saw God. As Jesus hangs on the cross, Christ, God in Christ hanging on the cross, the Pharisees and priests are all around him with their impeccable theology. And yet, they could not perceive God even as they looked him in the eyes. The only, one regard, the only person who uh, regarded Jesus as God was this Roman centurion with terrible theology who only worshipped the Roman pantheon of gods and still somehow he looks up and says, oh, truly, this was the Son of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the peaceful bridge builders in a war-torn world, for they are God's children working in the family business. Let's see if anybody knows this song. 
No, I don't want a battle from beginning to end. I don't want a cycle of recycled revenge. I don't want to follow death and all of his friends. You may know, I didn't sing it, but anybody know who that is? The poet Chris Martin in Coldplay. And their album, Viva La Vida, or subtitled, Death and All of His Friends. It's the last track. And uh, last, last August, a year ago, we did a series on finding God in your iPod and that song. I, I love that song. The story the Bible tells us is that the architect of human civilization is also a murderer that identified his brother as other and enemy and tells himself, oh, it had to be done. Kills him and hides the body. This is the pattern that is replicated throughout history, a cycle of recycled revenge. This is when a man, five generations removed from Cain, named Lamech, writes a violent limerick in Genesis 4. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. In other words, exponential violence will be unleashed. If you look at me wrong, I'll kill you. You slap me, I'll take your life. The 77-fold sounds familiar, right? Centuries later, Jesus comes along and takes that same equation in Matthew 18 and instead of releasing exponential violence on the world, he subverts it and releases exponential forgiveness on the world. How many times should we forgive? Seven times? Pastor Brandon saw this in August. We, we took that message and played it for our church last month. And No, 77 times. 70 times seven. Same, that's the only two places it's used. Jesus is constantly subverting the story the Old Testament tells us. If this beatitude doesn't convince us that the, God, the kingdom of God is peaceful and nonviolent, then I don't know what will. If we truly seek peace and not just a momentary ceasefire, but a peace that brings justice to the poor, oppressed, widow, imprisoned, refugee, to the orphan and the most marginalized in our society, if we seek peace that brings true peace to both society and the land, then the next beatitude is almost a natural progression. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are mocked, misunderstood, or even killed for seeking to make the world right, for the kingdom of heaven enters the earth amidst much persecution. The kingdom of heaven will always come through resistance. Why? Because the principalities and powers always resist this new government that God wants to bring to the earth. They want to keep the status quo where it is because it advantages, it is the advantage to them. And they will always resist this kingdom because it threatens their power. Rene Girard said, violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing. Violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing. Jesus didn't owe Rome anything, and they couldn't stand him for it. Jesus wasn't crucified because he taught people how to go to heaven when they died. He was crucified because he challenged the very way the world operates, around a system of power enforced by violence. Jesus offered an alternative way 
a way that becomes for us an axis of love expressed in forgiveness that refounds the world. As Jesuit priest and war protester, Father Daniel Berrigan said, if you're going to follow Jesus, you better look good on wood. This is the way of Jesus. It's radical. Just looking at these eight powerful blessings, we see that the politics of the kingdom are nothing like the politics of earthly empire. And the mode by which this kingdom, these politics, enter the earth is through the church. So our job as the church is not to enforce the politics of Jesus, but embody the politics of Jesus. We don't have to enforce it because the kingdom of heaven does not come by force. We simply embody it. The kingdom of heaven is without coercion, and it's certainly without violence. And as Christians, we persuade by love, witness, spirit, reason, rhetoric, and if need be, martyrdom, but never by force. It's our job to live it out, and I think if we do this really well, we will begin to transcend the left-right paradigm of our culture. Jesus is not a balance of left or right. Yeah, but if you take blue and red and you mix them together, you get purple. That's the color of royalty in Jesus. No. Jesus is not a balance of left and right. He is a completely other way. So if we do this really well, there'll be some days when you're labeled a conservative and some days you're labeled a liberal. But who cares? Don't let other people's labels of you affect affect how you live. I want to put an image up on the screen. The place I think we see the Beatitudes played out most beautifully and clearly is in the image of Christ upon the cross. Let me know what that's called. It's, really, it's a really creative name. It's called the crucifixion icon. And it's here that we see the entirety of the Beatitudes we can say they're all embodied in Christ. We see Mary and the women mourning, being comforted. We see the Roman centurion going, hey, you're the, truly the Son of God. Notice how Jesus' body is not straight. Kind of got a little swerve to it. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. When Moses was, and they were in the desert, and the people were bitten by a snake, poisonous snakes, God said, get a poisonous snake, put it on a pole, lift it up. Anybody who looks on that snake will be healed. Jesus becomes the snake that heals. He becomes the true snake on the pole. If you look on him. You will be healed. This is also, I think, what true power looks like. We don't have time to do a power message right now. But Christ on the cross would rather die than kill his enemies. And this is the form that our faith should take. Not a furrowed brow or a clenched fist or a wagging finger, but cruciform. As Hans Urs von Balthasar said, what a great name, 
being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So I want to end. I'm done. And everybody said, Amen. I want to pray the prayer of St. Francis. And I think it's going to come up on the screen, and you can pray it along if you would like. Otherwise, you can just listen and take it in. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.